Welcome to Librarians Allowed, an independent podcast produced by the Academic and Special Libraries section of the Library Association of Ireland. I'm your host, Laura Rooney-Farris. So it's the last episode of 2017 and we're signing off the year with a librarian that I've had loads of requests to interview, um, Neve O'Sullivan. Neve is the Librarian and Research Officer of the Irish Blood Transfusion Service, She's a former member of the Health Science Libraries Committee and she's a current member and life and soul of the Academic and Special Libraries Committee and also just the life and soul of any librarian gathering worth going to. So I sat down with Neve just before Christmas and we had a chat about her career and her adventures in Libraryland and we somehow managed in the interview to cover everything from Icelandic fishing, the OJ Simpson trial um, to blood and platelet donation So there's extra festive sound effects added by me scoffing Jaffa Cakes the whole way through the interview, so do excuse the sounds. So, Neva Sullivan, welcome to Librarians Aloud. (laughs) You are the most requested guest. Am I? Yes. Oh my gosh. I've had several requests to have you on the show and here you are finally as our, our Christmas cracker to end oh, thanks very 2017. Much, Laura. <laughs> so welcome. I hope you, there won't be a dodge. I hope you won't get a dodge prize guys. <laughs> Never. You, prob- you will probably get a bad joke because I am. Well um, it's Christmas. You yeah. Know, so yeah, it's the, the time for, for bad jokes. Yeah. Um, so Neve, tell me about how you got started in the world of libraries. Um, okay, well, I didn't start off wanting to be a librarian or have a burning desire to be <laughs> one. But um, you're not alone. Though. I did love love books, and I did love going to our, our local library home in Dinka. And um, when I'd finished in the kids section, um, I Laura's just opening Jaffa I'm cakes opening there. Jaffa cakes, Mini one. Stuffing herself. <laughs> um, so when I finished the kids section, section I moved over to the nine twenties. Ah. The biographies, and I read all about the biographies of um, the Hollywood stars, mm. and I dreamt someday of um, making it to Hollywood, getting out of Dingle and making it to Hollywood. Uh-huh. I never actually got to Hollywood, but I got to San Francisco and I lived there for five years, so nearly there, but mm. not quite. How did you end up in San Francisco? Um, I, uh, how would you say, I, I always wanted to go, obviously, and then I ended up um, getting a green card mm-hmm. and oh. um, moved over. And I worked in libraries there. Mm. I didn't start off in libraries working in San Francisco. I worked for a software company because I knew somebody who worked there. And um, I remember I started just before Easter, say the week before Easter. And I remember going in, Mm. I was so green around the gills. I remember going in and saying, um, it's a great week to start because it's, um, you know, a short week this week and a short week next week. And they were looking at me and I was like, you know, short week because we'll have the Friday off, good Friday off, and a short week next week because we'll have... Easter Monday off and they just <laughs> they were like oh no we don't get those days off yeah. and I was like oh because this is a secular country and I was like listen I wouldn't care who I to pray to if I got the day off work you know anyway <laughs> so that was a rude awakening um, so I worked in the software company for about six months and um, it was great it was like a baptism of fire but and what, like, what kind of um, I was basically they, they produce software for uh, mortgages 
mortgage information. So mm. um, deficit mortgage, mortgages that had gone into deficit and mm. um, they, I had to burn CD-ROMs and I ruined more CD-ROMs than I burned. But it was really... It's new. fine, they're obsolete. Yeah, they technology are now, right? now anyway. So. <laughs> but um, it was really new technology at the time. I remember they cost $30 each. Mm. So I burned quite a few. I mean, ruined quite a few. You wouldn't really want to be buying that if you were already in mortgage arrears. And you had no, to you buy wouldn't. No, but they used to sell it to mortgage or collectors and things oh. like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how legit the business was. But anyway, um, but that then led into a job with the um, San Francisco Chronicle newspaper oh, wow. and I worked there then for I think about two and a half years mm. so that was a great job yeah what were you doing there so I was on the in working in the library mm. so even though we were just all librarians um, for six months I used to put the uh, San Francisco the newspaper up online mm. um, it was the first newspaper to ever go online so this is you're talking about 95 mm. 94 to 97 I think I might have been there so um, it was the very first newspaper to go online and everyone thought they were mad and how would they make money from it yeah. and how, who would buy the newspaper if it was all available online but they used to have sponsored by they weren't quite ads but they mm. were sponsored by Neiman Marcus or sponsored by you know their main advertisers mm. um, they offered a package so if someone was advertising the paper they would also say sponsored by on the website yeah so that's kind of was the start of sort of monetizing the internet as we know it really i mm. think so and they really were the early days of they really were because they were the newspaper say the nearest big national newspaper to um silicon valley mm. so they were sort of always on the cutting edge and i think even still um well back then anyway they were they had loads of reporters on um it reporting on it and the rise of mm. um the internet and things like that so yeah that was really interesting. Oh, but I was saying that we were all librarians, but we kind of unofficially got assigned mm. sort of roles or the journalists, would, like the sports journalists would never come near me because I would have no interest in sports and I yeah. care less, you know. So um, they would go to the, the guys if they needed to have stats on sports. Mm. Um, and then I used to get a lot of the features writers. Mm. So I remember my first query there was, um, what are the top dogs' names? In America, and do you remember what they are? Um, I remember Samson. Really, was number one. Yeah. Surprising. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you think I get something like you know is Jennifer Flavin, um, Sylvester Stallone's like third or fourth wife. Uh -huh. So for the gossip pieces. So then I'd have well, to kind is, of. This is heaven for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I loved it I, and I was really good at my job like, I'd love to get queries like that yeah now. yeah they were they were because I'd, I'd be writing the more the fluff pieces mm. but I'm um, sure I loved them yeah that was good fun mm. and a really nice crowd oh and I was there when the OJ Simpson Ooh, uh, yeah. the slow speed chase in the Bronco mm. and because OJ was from San Francisco it was huge mm. news there absolutely massive news so the San Francisco Chronicle covered it every day and then the um the trial that was all covered so I was there for all all during that time mm. and actually I watched that um, American murder series the one with OJ yeah. um, with John Travolta playing uh, Robert Shapiro and mm -hmm. um, I think it was Kubo Gooding Jr. playing OJ yeah, anyway OJ, yeah, it was yeah. brilliant it was absolutely it all came back to mm. me I knew every single thing about that that uh, trial it's unbelievable yeah. yeah yeah very good so, um, sorry. Very interesting to <laughs> look back now at that period of time. Oh, absolutely. Because there yeah. were a lot of things 
emerging there? Like, did you look at the coverage of the trial, the coverage that the, that the Chronicle had of the trial, and and see any level of, of bias, or did did that mm. come into it at all? Because I remember kind of feeling that at the time of that trial, I that remember looking at it in, in media studies in terms of the um, reporting of. Of the, the crime of and the, the reporting crime. of trials. Yes. Well, I, I just remember it really coming home to me then that the people who thought he was guilty mm. and people who, and the, the breakdown in race, and it was, really was. I'd, I'd never seen anything so stark in my life. Mm. You know, so you just, bit, you were very careful who you spoke to because, like, we had African-Americans working in the, even in the library. There were about mm. three girls, and I remember one day coming in and saying something like, like, what are they waiting to see a video of him doing it? You know, I was so convinced he'd done it. Mm. And they absolutely, you know, told, you know, told me to basically, well, they, they let me off because I wasn't American. Yeah. But basically told me, you know, that the cops framed so many people, how, mm. you know. Yeah. You know, so I remember it was coming out of a context absolutely, of a lot huge of very dubious activity. On the absolutely, the, yeah. The and then I, I started rethinking, gosh, I'm believing everything I'm reading and I'm believing all yeah. the sort of white media out there. So... Yeah, it was a huge, huge lesson to learn, really. Mm. And it, t- it did change things, because I think um, it, it was a huge divide in, in, in the States. It was a huge, huge story. Mm. Yeah. yeah, It's very interesting to, for you to have been there as well, from, you know, from the point of view of an information professional and looking at the way news media kind of yeah, I don't reports you know, I and how they, how they kind of distribute information and um, yeah. levels of bias or not. And I don't, you know, I wish I'd sort of probably been a bit more aware at the time. Mm. Now I could see I don't it. think anyone, yeah. I don't, I don't think, think we were as aware. that was probably one of the first cases where yeah. we became aware of the, acutely aware of such polarised opinions as and the, how much their own background kind of played and into decision making. And we tended to just believe, believe what we read. We really did. Yeah. And until somebody really points out to you, you, you why wouldn't you just keep thinking the same thing unless you're, you're you know somebody makes a valid point but mm. that's not what you have to believe or you know that there is another side yeah that there are multiple but I think the fact that OJ probably did do it I mean yeah you know didn't help people mm. c- people's case if you like you know it's, you know it's against the police etc yeah but and so how long were you in that role for? Uh, about three and a half years mm. what yeah. made you Oh, I um, I decided to come back to Ireland because I was, I think I was 30, 30 at the time and um, my 30th birthday was coming up and I kind of, I'd seen a lot of people who'd lived in the States and sort of almost left it too late to come home mm. and then it, it was too late, you know, they might be married and settled with families and it was a big upheaval then so mm. um, I kind of thought I might just go home and try it out. Oh, the mm. peace process happened, that was it, I remember. Yeah. That's when I made up my mind to. I just felt Ireland was going to probably change, Which and it, did. it was it probably going, going to be a good time to go home. But um, and so I went. I came home, and I said I'd give it a year. I was kind of almost mm. hoping it wouldn't work out <laughs> at home. So I said I'd give it a year at home, and if it didn't work out, I still had my green card. Mm. Um, and then when I came home, then I I had known my husband when we were younger, but I remet him. And um, my whole my life took another track. <laughs> I ended up going to Australia yeah. then, but um, yeah, because he was going to Australia. But yeah, yeah. So that's mm. how I'm here now. So you were a qualified librarian when you went to the states. Yes. Yeah. So I basically um, I started work in in my library career in Dublin, 
county council libraries and I was mm. a library, library assistant for six months. Then I went back to um, college, I did a master's in English and then I went over to London and because I had, um, I didn't have the library diploma done at this stage, but mm. because I had a master's and I had worked in a library, mm. um, even though it was only for six months, but still um, I got in with TFPL, Task Force Pro Libra. Oh yeah. And they were a library and research kind of temping agency, but they would also get mm. you permanent jobs. So I think at that stage, I really liked libraries and I especially liked the research aspect of them. Mm. So uh, I ended up working for TFPL then. Um, I got farmed out or temped out as a researcher. Mm. Um, and I remember my first job with TFPL, I was um, sent to... Scandinaviska and Skilda Banken. It's a mm. Swedish merchant bank, and um, I had to do research on the Icelandic fishing industry. And you still remember was, all that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, and because um, I, I, I do, because I was terrified. I, they basically put me in the room with a phone and um, a few sort of books that they had. I mean, this is like this is mm. in the I suppose late eighties, eighty seven ish. 87 so I mean mm. pre-internet or anything like I pre-computers nearly I yeah. mean I hardly knew how to use a computer. <laughs> people hardly even knew how to use a phone <laughs> in Ireland back then <laughs> yeah um so I and they said oh we'll see how you you know we'll check in with you at lunchtime like okay mm. great bye see ya bye thanks <laughs> oh, I'm just I picturing them locking you in a room <laughs> going like you have 15 it was, minutes it was a bit to like find that. out everything <laughs> there is to know about Icelandic fisheries but it was a bit like you know that that Irish legend about the little the, the girl that put in locked in overnight to spin gold oh, yeah. yarn and she gets these two little Elf fairies to do show up to do it. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> how long did you spend in that room just looking at the phone, going, "I actually, how did. do I summon up fairies to get them to do this?" I task did, for and me? I, I, I rang a friend of mine locally, mm. um, a, g- a girl I knew who was a librarian, mm. and I said, "I'm here. What am I going to do? Who will I ring?" She said, "Right, ring um, the try the embassy, the Ice, Icelandic the embassy, embassy. Yeah. and." Um, she said they might help you. They might have something. At least you, mm. you'll have made a start. You know, you have something to show them. So um, I rang the embassy and they were kind of pushing me from Billy to Jack because they didn't really mm. know who to put me to. They didn't have a library, I don't think. And um, so then I got some Icelandic guy and I basically kind of um, nearly started crying going, I'm locked in the room <laughs> and I have to get something. Please, please help. So um, he was really, really nice, and he faxed me. Oh, we had a fax. Oh. He faxed he me did over some stats, and um, and I think they were kind of secret kind of ones or something. Anyway, mm. that classified documents <laughs> on the Icelandic <laughs> fishing industry. But uh, they, they were they were ones definitely weren't in the public domain. Mm. So when they came back at lunchtime, and I, I said, "Oh well, I, I found I got this for you," and they were like, "Oh my God, this is wonderful! Where did you get this?" <laughs> So I was like, they thought I was wonderful after that. And that was grand. And I made a good friend with him. And um, then he, obviously, like, you just need a start. You just need somebody yeah, it's about that to put you on the right gatekeeper track. opening the gate for yeah. you. And he gave me names of other people then to contact mm. and phone numbers, etc. So then I was like, kind of on the road. And then I, I, anytime I ever was stuck after that, I'd ring the embassy because they're mm. usually quite, you know, diplomatic or whatever. But they would yeah. help you. If they didn't know, that at least put you in touch with somebody. Mm. Yeah, so <laughs> that was my career in um, in TFPL, and then I. And how many years then did you have to spend undercover because the Icelandic <laughs> Fisheries Board were looking for you because you'd had access to classified <laughs> <Secret> information? <laughs> information. 
yeah, I um, <laughs> I remember then. Oh, I worked um, on a trading floor of a um, another bank mm. that was terrible because uh, you'd be doing company searches as they were trading, mm. and they were absolutely horrific to work with because they used to click their fingers. Imagine that. Bankers being yeah, horrible. They were all. They were awful though. Yeah. Um, the money was really good, and I was like, "Why is the money like nearly like one and a half times the rate mm. I would have been on for any other job?" So I said, "Oh, I'll take that. That's grand." Um, but I soon find out why the money was so good because um, they were so horrible. Yeah. So they click their fingers at you and go, "Hey, Irish." Ooh. Yeah, and then I and then that is uh, say, pretty obnoxious. Um, and I'd say, "When do you need that by?" Uh, yesterday, and I'd say, "Oh no, pissy, you didn't ask me the day before." Yeah. and I might have had it for you. So I was taking um, no BS from anybody. I'm picturing um, and a I lot say, of my name isn't Irish either. suits and yeah. red braces and red braces. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a lot of black and chrome furniture. Wash their car at weekends. I just that's all I really remember about them. But anyway, it was an experience, mm. and um, I swore I'd never again work. Um, for an outfit like that again, mm. yeah. So I kind of, I think I, that's when I decided I'd work for sort of, or I'd much prefer the uh, public sector type jobs. Mm. Yeah. So um, then I sort of worked with the British Council, promoting British education and culture overseas, and they put me on the information desk because mm. they had a sense of humour. So we can come <laughs> in and watching to study in the UK, and they get this very Irish accent. Um, <laughs> explaining what they should do about it etc so that was great though I loved that job that mm. was really really interesting yeah so when you came back to Ireland then after your your travels so where did your oh I did the, I then, then did the library diploma um when I was over in London I think the library diploma then the, it got EC funding or something oh yeah yeah that would have been maybe oh 89 90 that's when I did the mm. library diploma and um so it got EC funded, so I thought, oh, now it's a good time. interesting the number of people I've spoken to that, really? that studied in that golden <laughs> yeah. that golden era of when the, the library course yeah, I was think you got EC, EC funded. Yeah, I think, I don't know if they just covered your fees. I seem to remember getting a bit of money as well. and you got some level of yeah. grant as well. You did, I think, yeah. yeah. So I, I did that then, that was 89.90, so I've been mm. qualified since 90.90. But I went back to London then after with, with my qualification. And actually, that's when I ended up working with the British Council because I was actually a librarian when mm. I worked for the British Council, not a library assistant. Or, um, and I loved that. But then they moved to Manchester and the, the office I was working in, Lib- Libid, Library Information and Books Division or something. Mm. So they moved to... Um, really trips off the tongue, Yeah, isn't it? yeah. So they might want to reconsider <laughs> yeah. that We used to call it Libid, I remember. No, Libid. And... Um, yeah, I moved to Manchester and we, I moved to Manchester for a little while with them, just for three months or something, to set up the my little section of the library up there. Um, and then I worked for the ODA, mm. uh, but then they did security clearance and they found out my granddad was in the old IRA, like the old IRA. Oh, I hasten to add, yeah, they won, you know. And so what, did they in. just come and say, no, sorry, you're out yeah. of job, your grandfather was right. a raw man? Yeah, but that was like, that was in, nine, you know, when they were all How in How did it. they find that out? They went back. Like, they obviously asked for my mother's maiden name. Mm. And so they traced it back. So this is when, um, this was against the Black and Tans, that IRA. Yeah. Like, that's, you know, yeah, the, the Irish Republican Army or whatever. I mean, whatever it was called back then. Yeah, imagine. 
they brought me in. They were ever so nice about it, but they said, I'm, "We're so so sorry, and we, you know, we you we're so fond of you and everything." We're terribly sorry, but we seem to have discovered that her family are ruffians. <laughs> Like I can't <laughs> believe it. We're afraid you're a security risk. And the, um, yeah, I actually couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. I got a, a right land, mm-hmm. um, and then I was like, "Oh, that's all. That's it. So I'm off to America." <laughs> and off I went. They're to America. happy to accept my kind there. <laughs> it was very funny, actually. Um, so I did go to America, not mm-hmm. not because of that. Really, I had planned to go. I think my you green escaped card because of your subversive roots. Yeah, to abscond <laughs> off to the states. <laughs> So, yeah, so in America, then we saw for a company and then the um, San Francisco Chronicle. Mm. Then I came back to Ireland and I, I was um, working DCU in many different guises because mm. I sort of covered, I think, two maternity leaves and then maybe three maternity leaves. Anyway, I ended up working on the information They were desk. busy in DCU in they the were. <laughs> Humanities librarian and acquisitions librarian. Mm. And then I worked for South Dublin for a few months. Then I got the job with the Blood Transfusion Service because mm-hmm. I'd done so a few temporary contracts. This was a permanent, pensionable job. And, Holy Grail. Um, yeah. Well, I remember going for the interview and it was over in Pelican House. Mm. We're now in the lovely National Blood Centre. Pelican House was over in the south side, so and I'm from the north side, Navin Road. So um, I remember kind of getting off the bus and thinking, oh, this is a bit of a hike. <laughs> so I went into Tracking the interview. all the way over to the I know. Side. I was like, oh, I don't know about this. I'm, I'm very into, like, not being too far from home. Yeah. Um, I just don't want to spend my life commuting, you know. Mm. So um, I, um, I, when I went in, they said, oh, before the interview starts, uh, we just want to tell you that this won't be where the, the job will be based. Mm. We'll be moving to new premises. So I was thinking to myself, oh, it's any further into the south side, forget it. Yeah. So I said, oh, where is that? And they said, um, it'll be on the grounds of James's Hospital. I actually thought mm. it was Dr. Stevens. I thought James's yeah. Hospital was where it was Dr. Stevens's. So I was like, oh, mm. the one near Houston Station. <laughs> they were like, well, not quite opposite Houston, yeah. up the hill. Sort of. I said, oh, that's grand. That suits me way better. Because, <laughs> but this is before the interview started. Mm. Because I was actually walking in here thinking a bit too far for me now. So I remember a girl who's the communications manager at the time was on the interview panel and mm. I've since became very good friends with her and she said I wanted to give you the job that minute because like you were telling us that we suited you yeah and she was like I just love her now I want her mm. like she'd be gas crack she'd be <laughs> suiting herself so but it, yeah well you kind of have to suit yourself too mm. you know I think if you suit yourself then you're happy and then you'd be better for everyone yeah you're yeah. less likely to leave you're less likely to leave exactly and you're more willing to give it your time and effort etc yeah mm. yeah so that was and that was um 18 and a half years ago wow yeah. you know so and I so had, had there been a library in the blood transfusion service there had, had there always been yeah. yeah there was a no it wasn't it didn't have a librarian it it had a um a an older lady nearly said old woman an older lady who um used to sort of mined the books and she mm. was fantastic bound all the journals mm. at the end of the year like really really took care of it but I mean there was one computer in the whole one computer with internet access in the whole building and that was in the library wow um, that's power that was power actually <laughs> having yeah, access yeah. to the only internet accessible and the computer. first thing I did was I put um, a password on it mm. because I used to come in and like that was at the desk I was at mm. and I'd come in in the morning there'd be people just you know sitting at my desk and rooting around in my you know so mm. I was like okay I'm putting a password on that 
So then, then they'll have no reason to be, you know, and they're like, oh, homework, password homework. And I said, oh, yeah, I said, oh, gosh, now what happened to let me in, all right? But anyway, so, um, yeah, that was in 80, no, 1999. Mm. So you came in and claimed your turf? Yes, absolutely. Um, mm. And then we, we kind of moved to the new building in 2000 then, and um, we all have, obviously, computers, internet access mm. throughout the building. So it was very good because I was able to go online then. Mm. At that stage, I was able to just say, look, our journals are online. We'll, we still have them in print, but they're online. Um, mm. So there'd be no more photocopying. Um, <clears throat> when I think of it, the, the woman who was there before me, she used to photocopy all the pages, the contents pages from all the journals. How long would that take? Oh, ages. And then she would, um, so then she would compile them into one, mm. sort of maybe it could be, I don't know, 40 pages or something. Yeah. And then, because you might have three pages of a contents in, in one issue mm. of a journal. And then she used to photocopy that by about 20 and give it around to all the consultants and medical, mm. maybe the chiefs of labs. I bet some of them still come back and say, do you remember you used to photocopy that, all the yeah. papers? Does they would highlight the articles. I've things like that in the last couple of years. Yeah. But they still want... Oh, yeah, they still want they it still like want that. Yeah. But they would highlight the articles they required and she mm. would go off and photocopy them. So it was like a photocopying service. That's what it was, really. Mm. So then I was like, okay, we're going online now. You can, these, I will send you the contents and then you can um, click into them and into the anything you want and in you go. But still, you know what someone did once? They actually highlighted... They, forward the contents back to me mm. and actually highlighted the journals they wanted with like an online highlighter yeah and i was like what but the, in the time it took in you, to do, it that, took you to do that you would yeah. have clicked into it and printed it off well they'd still print it off mm. that's not my business if they want to print it off that's their business mm. you know they can be doing what they like printing it off if yeah. they want to but i mean points for being an awkward gay to that person <laughs> <laughs> like, i said you obviously have very good it skills if you're able to forward and highlight and find the highlighter in the mm. in an email which i don't know if i'd know where it was mm. yeah so uh so that was it was good that we moved building though because then we, you were able to bring a new a lot of new things in mm. in the new building because it was like we had to change and um so you were even though it was an older library it had a new start or a fresh start so it was mm. a good a good chance to get everything online yeah yeah and so what was your perception of what the job was going to be like? Because it's quite an unusual job. It's sort of a mixture of research and library management. And it's, it's And an awful lot of internal communications, yeah. and yeah, which came later. That came really more when I came under HR then. So I was mm. under the CEO's office until I think it was about 95. Mm. So say for yeah, six years, I was under the CE's office. And I was, um, it was definitely more medical library and it was for consultants and lab chiefs etc and um in a way then coming under hr who then i like got changed to library services mm. it was better in some ways i think it made my job more interesting because it wasn't just medical and health and research yeah. based which wouldn't have suited everyone i think like mm. they were looking in a way as, that as a health library it's quite an, an interesting mix it's not purely you know, you're not, it's not purely a medical. No, I think you're some sort of a hybrid. Yes, I definitely am. Yeah, a hybrid between maybe, a, and then a little bit of a corporate library because mm. then we, you know, I work a lot with our marketing team as well. So, and a bit of a 
it's a bit of a community centre. It's mm. everything. Like it is a yeah. hybrid, and, and I, I think I that's what a library. If there it's is a library in, yeah. in organisation, it should be even if it if it is a medical organisation, it absolutely. should still speak to all staff. Absolutely, not just people who are absolutely. Clinical I would completely staff. agree with that because, and I we wrote our sort of mission statement. Nobody. I didn't really get permission as such, but I said it's for all staff. So that's whether mm. they're medical or non-medical. It has medical and non-medical material, mm. and it's for work and study purposes as well. So it's kind of for everyone, mm. um, and not just everyone in Dublin. It had been very Dublin-centric, and had been very medic-centric, and um, and had been very sort of work, or you know just to do with the work. Really. Mm. So I kind of broadened it so that it became. Uh, library for all all staff all over the country and then all um, no matter what discipline and then um, work and study purposes mm. so I keep pushing that message and then it's 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 a value to far more people and then you're making your position and your library far more valuable as a commodity for the whole organisation so mm. you never know who is going to value it could be someone in finance is really valuing your help when they're trying to do an accountancy degree and then they might be the ones making decisions on budgets so it's kind of in in our interest to to be you know to to help everyone yeah to be all inclusive absolutely because i i genuinely think that if there is a library or even if there isn't a physical library if there's an information professional in an organization you're of ben there is no one in that organization that you can't be of benefit to absolutely um, yeah from the person who and even things like um, the floor to the ceo everyone has educational and information needs. needs and you just and this is my my point always is I give people what they what they want mm. not what I think they want I give them what they actually want so say for example the CEO he might be doing an interview for Adi and I'd have good Irish so I would mm. sit down with him and we'd sort of decide you know or he would decide mm. and then I might help him translate um, what he wants to say um, then maybe my own boss the HR director might be giving the presentation so I might get some nice images for him to use in the presentation mm. um, somebody's people are often come for quotes because they're giving a talk mm. and they want a nice quote about I don't know benevolence or kindness mm. or yeah. blood donation etc um, so yes I think if you make yourself available people will always have information needs but you have to make sure you let them know that you are there to meet those needs that you can meet mm. those needs and you're very happy to do it yeah and that yeah. there aren't parameters around it as well because i think you know going back to the idea of libraries that are health or medically based i think they often Absol- exclude people who they work do. in these organizations who are administrative or support in some way or managerial staff yeah who have equally important um information needs and need high quality information to make decisions related to their jobs and they often Maybe don't think or historically have maybe felt that libraries yeah. were only for the pure kind of hardcore yeah. um, evidence-based like medical research. Yeah, every every library should have something like the Harvard, um, Harvard Business Review. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It doesn't matter what kind of a library it is mm. because you're going to have people in the management on your management team who might want to find out about communication skills or building teams or networking or mm. um, and they ultimately, I mean, when you even just think about it, they're the people in a way with the purse strings and making decisions whether a library will close or if it's a nice to have service or a need Mm -hmm. to have but if they need to have you if they like to have you and if they've used you they'll be less likely to close you Mm -hmm. i always think that's that's where i come from anyway and then if they you know if they decide to close you well what can you do at least you try so Mm. yeah but uh 
I've always I've always felt you should be very inclusive and also but you have to keep shouting that from the rooftops because mm-hmm. no matter I, I do cop training which is corporate orientation training and I preach that from the beginning you know look mm-hmm. we're not in our ivory tower we're here to help if you don't know anywhere else to go start with us a bit like mm-hmm. the guy back all those years ago in the embassy but mm-hmm. you know it's a start like we'll put you on the right track we yeah. might be able to answer you but we'll tell you we'll tell where you, you need to yeah, s- yeah. and especially is. if you get people and again like it's like if you get them young in schools etc mm. if you get people when they've started and you make sure they know the library is very accessible place and there's no such thing as a stupid query or question etc even though even though there we are that there but are we know yeah but we, 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 we won't let tell on them, yeah um, so then i think that's how you get the word out there mm. yeah yeah you've always been very good on the the marketing side of things you've given a lot of presentations and talks about marketing yourself and marketing libraries what is your kind of advice to Um, people marketing their library services and marketing themselves as information professionals well I think it's like it's like when you market yourself in life it's like Mm. don't set yourself up to be anything special or anything different from anyone else people don't like that people don't Mm. like people who are perfect people don't know people who don't make make mistakes um people like people who kind of like them but maybe know a little bit more than they do about something and and are willing to help them and not and don't don't judge you know just do it in a very easy breezy nice way and i think you just get an awful lot more back i mean people mightn't think i'm the sharpest tool in the shed and that's fine (laughs) fine by me you know but but meanwhile while someone's up in their ivory intellectual tower Mm. you know um you know i'll be there actually helping and doing something for Mm. somebody it's nice to surprise people's expectations well it is yeah Yeah. exactly well uh, yeah exactly i mean people think i'm not the brightest tool in the shed but i mean I know I am. People who don't know you, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. But they're surprised then how, you know, that, gosh, you really are very knowledgeable. Mm. I think that's something that librarians struggle with in general, though, is what our people's perceptions of us are. But see, I think people's perceptions of librarians is usually that they are very bright, Mm. and, um, but that they mightn't, that then they mightn't be very approachable because, Mm. you know, gosh, they'll think I'm stupid now. You see, whereas... Uh, maybe I go a bit too much the other extreme of like yeah. I'm so not you know super bright um but then you make yourself approachable you know mm. so I think maybe yeah I probably need to kind of say I'm approachable and I'm bright at the same time but um I hopefully people do realize that once mm. they ask me for help and I can find I find them what they look for usually mm. and if I don't I'm very honest as well like if I can't find something or you know, I, I'm, I'm, I think maybe I'm confident enough at this stage to say, look, I honestly don't think it's out there. It doesn't exist because I would have found it by now. You do become yeah. good at well, searching. Well, particularly if you, you know, you have worked in, you know, the, your subject area for quite a long time, and it is a very specialist area. Yes. You're, yeah. You're, to my knowledge, the only sort of type of library of your sort in. I am in, in you, the country. One. Yes, yeah. I'm in the Northern Irish Blood Service. Don't have um, a librarian. So mm. yeah, yes, yeah, I. Um, officially the only blood banking library in the country. Wow. So, so would you get a lot of queries from not just the staff based here, but you get a lot of stuff from people based around the country? I do. I get um, from transfusion sur- surveillance officers in mm. hospitals. And um, yes, from... It dep- and I, I weirdly get um, psychology students mm. um, because they're quite 
fascinated by um, the whole notion of blood donation, mm. how it's an altruistic act as okay, opposed yeah, to so a benevolent yeah. act, because you never know who you've given the blood to. They can never mm. thank you. I mean, obviously, we, we the blood transfusion service thank mm. our donors but that's a general thank you you know you don't say like thank you Laura for giving blood yeah, to you never get Michael etc yeah you don't goes. so it's actually is um, a, a real pure altruistic act you're doing it you're doing good mm. for the sake of good really um, then you have platelet donors who come in every month I mean you've mm. you have people from Donegal travelling up because it's the only place to it's give platelets to it, yeah. and they travel up every month from Donegal um, they give their platelets and they drive back home again mm. some of them they might there's one CEO of a company he schedules meetings up in Dublin so he gives he comes in early in the morning gives his um, you know, platelets and then has his meetings goes back to Donegal and then does it again the following month that's just the most amazing thing to do yeah. I think really is fabulous and platelets even more than blood are used for uh, preterms and for mm. um, to help with chemotherapy as well, I mean, they're really, really important. Yeah. But usually, it you can't give, um, you can't give platelets if you've had a child. So often, you, it's it's mainly men on that panel or mm. younger women, on the platelet panel, and it's a huge commitment for them to do it. But they are amazing people to do it. Mm. So, and that's another part of my job. I love, I love the fact that it's kind of meaningful and it means something to someone you know so yeah and even though it's only small I play a small role in it I I remember when I went for the interview for this place um they asked me well once we got over where they were going to be based etc <laughs> once you established that it was going to suit you yeah, in terms exactly. of where you had to travel to every yeah. day they asked me um why I had uh, applied why I had come for the position and um it was just after the tribunals and mm. it had gone through the mire this organization had gone really really low mm. um and I remember saying to them I said I nearly didn't come for it because um you know of what has happened but then I thought mm. well that's has happened in the past and hopefully it's an organisation that will be growing and developing etc and I said and I also want to work for um, something that will contribute to the greater good mm. you know and kind of I was never ever going to work in a bank again yeah um, well I ended up working in a blood bank but it's a very different type of mm. bank but um, and that's probably why 18 and a half years later I'm still here because um, I still have that sense of being part of something that's that's good. Yeah. Yeah. That's really I think get that's, that's really nice to be able to say, uh, having worked somewhere for as long as you have, that the that you still see that the end product is good. Yeah. You know, that that yeah. that you're part of a process that's changing people's lives. And, and I think that's one thing that particularly people who work in health or medical libraries do make that connection of the end result is hopefully, you know, um Im- improved information to inform patient care to inform healthcare practices yes you do see that you're part you know a, a link in a chain that improves somebody's life yeah just i'd better say um apologies for anyone who does work in bank because <laughs> i hope just you won't be offended yeah, yeah, no, work in but, bank. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
But, uh, you know, I, I was actually quite reluctant to do this interview. Because I know you'd asked me before, but I was like, oh my gosh, loose lips sing ships. And I'll probably um, say something, put my foot in it and offend people. So no offence meant to anyone. Sometimes my mouth just runs away from me. And um, Apart from people who click their fingers, I oh, well, say, yeah, I yeah. need that tomorrow. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But oh, don't worry, I was well able for yeah. them. They only, they only did it um, the once ever. Mm. Well, they each did it the once though. That's the thing, you know, you'd berate one person and you'd think, well, okay, they've all learned and their And then they discovered now. that it was difficult to click your fingers with broken <laughs> fingers. <laughs> so, um, yeah, well, no, this was... And I've had two uh, previous interviews on radio. One was... Um, well, both were for Radio and the Gaeltata. So one was after I left boarding school, uh, an all-Irish boarding school, and they'd interviewed us to see, like, what we were going to do, which I don't know why they bothered. And what did you say? Everyone was going to be a teacher, you know? Mm. Um, I wasn't, but um, I remember saying... Oh, they asked me, like, what did I learn? What did being in Clash to Egypt kind of teach me? And I was mm. supposed to say, you know... Oh, grow for the Ungaelge, etc., etc. I said, and in, in probably perfect Irish, I mm. said, um, well, at least I know if I my ever if I'm ever sent to prison, I won't crack up because I've been in prison for five years. <laughs> That's a so that didn't answer. go down very well. That one was edited out, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. And then um, I was asked if um, I did a, a, an interview here about blood blood donation. So around mm. the time of VCJD. And um, so I had prepared what I was going to say, it was for Reggie McGuire as well. Mm. But then your man, the interviewer, one, got the, had the bit between his teeth about VCJD and asked me all sorts of medical questions that I hadn't a clue in English, not to mind Irish. And um, I got very flummoxed and I kept saying things like, uh, Jontas Fill, I was saying, which is wrong. It's it should be Jontas Fulla. It's like the tissue mm. ginnajuk. But anyway, uh, the gen genitalia. You can see by the blank look yeah, on my face yeah. that I'm clearly <laughs> one of those people who has pretty much no Irish and no interest in developing but, my Irish skills. But my mother was listening to the interview and um, she was like, I couldn't believe you saying Jontas Fill. I think I was saying Jontas Fill instead of Fulla, right? Mm. She said it's the equivalent in English of saying I done that. <laughs> Your poor mother. So I was like, "That's it. My my radio days are over. I'm mm. never giving an interview again." I was mortified then. So, anyway, but this was painless enough. That's fine. Yeah. This won't be you yeah. know listened to by too many people. Yeah. Um, so, what's <laughs> your your big really. learning um, from your years as a librarian? What's what's the greatest lesson. piece of wisdom and lesson that you can pass on? You think? Um, I really really love it that's what i'd say i love it and i suppose if you do what you love you'll never work again or something you'll never something work a day thing. in your life yeah, yeah or something like that well i wouldn't go that far mm. but i do i love being a librarian but i i i love being a librarian more than i love being working for the blood transfusion service if you know what i mean yeah i actually just love being a librarian and i think i'd be happy being a librarian mm. anywhere really i love other librarians and um it's so important for me to go to you know be on the ensl with you and um getting involved in the conferences and going to library events. I really absolutely mm. just feel very at home with other librarians. I feel they're they don't judge. They're they're just right on people. Like mm. they really they are, are. They're yeah. very kind and I mean I've met one or two that aren't. Oh but, yeah, not know, everyone the I'm generalizing. But but for the most part they are very, very decent mm. and I feel like I can really be myself with them. And I don't honestly feel like that with an awful lot of people. Dingle mm. I feel very I can be myself and with librarians that's about it really yeah everywhere else I kind of have to be someone else 
That's pretty good uh, endorsement yeah. for. So is it, let me say, uh, being a librarian allows you to be yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That is a very good point on which right. to end. Neve, <laughs> very much, thank Laura. you very much. Bye, and everybody. Merry Christmas. <laughs> thank you. Happy Christmas. Nolly Connor, Steve Galear. Thanks to Neve for seeing this year's Librarians Allowed series to a close. Um, but that's it for 2017. Uh, it's time to start planning for 2018. So ASL 2018 will happen on March 9th and it's open for booking now. This year we're taking on the ambitious topic of how to deal with failure and disaster. Um, so some of our speakers include Duncan Chapel from the Glasgow School of Art and he'll be talking about how they recovered from the fire in their library in 2014. So you can follow at AS Libraries on Twitter for updates and more information on the programme and booking details as they become available. Thanks so much to all of the great guests I've interviewed this year and to everyone who's listened in and subscribed and kept coming back. You've made it all worth the effort, so thank you. Um, if you aren't already doing so, do subscribe um, to the podcast on Ap- Apple Podcasts and if you're feeling very generous, um, you can give us a rating Happy New Year and stay tuned for more Librarians Allowed in 2018. Librarians Allowed is produced and presented by Laura Rooney-Ferris. Music and editing is by Michael Ferris.